Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This week we have a message called Three Days. And look at that subtitle, it's just huge. A study in the Christian's response to God's apparent silence. I'm guessing that out of a room this size, we have some of you that are in the midst or in the throes of a difficulty, a challenge, where you have approached the throne of grace, you have petitioned God on a certain point, and yet you would say, if I was going to ask you today, if I said, what was God's answer? You'd say, it seems that he's been very silent on the matter. And silence is a certain form of suffering that we deal with as Christians, and yet I want to address this very specifically today because it's what leads to resurrection, understanding. You, you need to understand the cross, and then you need to understand the burial and these three days to fully appreciate and appropriate the beauty and the grandeur of that uh, first day of the week when the stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped forth resurrected. And so three days, and it's interesting to think that three days is a theme throughout scripture. It's not just the three days of Jesus in the tomb, because if I say three days, there's three days that sort of stand out above all other three days, just like the cross is foreshadowed, and that's what we talked about last week. The cross is foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament, and so you can look at the Old Testament and say, wow, there's going to be a suffering Messiah, and his hands and his feet will be pierced, his side will be pierced, and they will part his garments and, and cast lots for his clothing. In other words, there's, there's a certain picture that is laid out in the Old Testament, and the same is true for three days, which is extremely fascinating. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Well, that's encouraging. I don't know how many of you are attracted to a furnace of affliction, and yet it, God is saying, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Now, I'm going to do a little something in the New Testament here. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. So if you understand that we are chosen in the Lord, and here Rufus, I know it seems strange, Rufus. Isn't it funny that in the Bible there's a guy named Rufus? And so if you ever name your child Rufus, you know, there's biblical precedent for it. <laughs> Salute Rufus, chosen the Lord and his mother and mine. And so technically we could understand it this way. Just as Rufus was chosen in the Lord, Isaiah is, and God is saying in Isaiah, you're chosen in a furnace of affliction. So salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Well, what is the Lord? Well, you could say it this way. He's the furnace of affliction. You see, we, what's your position? In Christ. You see, you are in Christ. And another way of saying that is in, you have entered into a furnace of affliction. Now, that's not the end statement on the matter, but that's definitely part of what it means to be in Christ. You have stepped out of Adam and into a new dwelling place, and you have entered into the Lord. You have entered into a furnace of affliction. So we can call it the suffering Christ. There's a lot of different terms that we could give. But we say, I am in Christ, and that is a statement that should transcend your entire Christianity. It should alter your thinking, because when you are in Christ, you are where he is. If you are in Christ, you share in his work. It is a work that you couldn't perform. He performed it. And when you enter into Christ, it's like entering into a plane. You can't fly, but that plane can and as a result, you're able to accomplish something that you couldn't on your own. And that's the same with being in Christ. The law of gravity outside that plane defeats you. And you cannot do as you would wish to do. But when you enter into that plane, you function under a higher law. We could call it the law of aerodynamics. In Scripture, it's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So you are in Christ. I am in Christ, therefore his sufferings are my sufferings. You see, instead of just saying his victory is my victory, I want to focus on something. I want us to understand that we share in both the sufferings and the victory. 
And these sufferings aren't to be overlooked. I know we want to skip over them really quick. I mean, we live in a very cozy, comfortable society known as America here. And so when we understand I am in Christ, therefore his sufferings are my sufferings. You know that kid that used to get picked on uh, growing up, you know, on the, this public school and get beaten up by the bullies? Well, could you imagine stepping inside of him for a day and going to school with him and suddenly seeing the evil looks and the stares and the jeers and then suddenly the big bully comes up and you're realizing, whoa, I'm, I'm in this kid. You know, I used to look from a distance and go, oh, poor kid. But now you step into his skin, you realize it from a whole different light. You begin to tremble as he trembles. You begin to realize, can we run? Can we move? Let's hide. Hide behind a bush. You used to make fun of that kid, but now you understand him in a whole unique way. And suddenly you have an empathy and a compassion. It's called fellowship in his sufferings. You see, when you step into Christ, you step into a fellowship. You step into, in a sense, his skin. And now the way he is treated on this earth you get treated. And you have a whole new appreciation for the cross. You have a whole new lens through which you will look at it. His affliction, my affliction. His death, my death. His burial, my burial. Now we can keep going because some good things begin to happen after that. However, you need to realize I'm emphasizing one dimension. And and of course you could say, well, you can't just emphasize that and leave out the rest. Well, I'm not going to leave out the rest. What do you think we're setting everything up for? However, most of us as Christians fail to identify with this portion. We just want the good stuff. We want the easy stuff. We want words like victory and resurrection. We don't want words like death and burial. And yet death, burial, and resurrection, they all go together. Resurrection doesn't make any sense unless you have a death and a burial. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, the word in the Greek, baptizo, means to be put in or immersed into something. So know know you not that so many of us as were put into Jesus Christ, stepped into Jesus Christ, entered into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Well, didn't you know that if you entered into Jesus Christ, what's your position? You see, if you're in Jesus Christ, didn't you know that you were also put into his death? You see, you're in him, therefore, when he died, well, you died. You see, it became your death. Therefore, we are buried with him. See, the logic flows that if you were in his death, well, then you were also in his burial. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Uh, I gave you some good stuff there. I'm wanting you to focus on the suffering and the affliction here, but the scripture is always pushing towards the resurrection. I can't even, I didn't need to try and trim this out. You see, we are baptized into his death, and as a result, subsequently we're also baptized or put into his burial. When he was buried, we were buried. You see, this is a key component concept to Christianity. You see, you have a dimension of your life that you can't seem to get rid of. It's the old you. It's that one part of you that creeps into every conversation and into moments when you wish you would just get out of there. It's that selfish, self-centered, fleshly you. And you can't seem to get rid of it. No matter how hard you try, you discipline your life. Say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to look at these things anymore. I'm not going to think thoughts like that anymore. And there you go. You do it again. It's a part of you that's known as the old man. And the old man cannot be dealt with outside of Jesus Christ. But when you step into Jesus Christ, his death becomes your death. And the old man that you could never deal with is officially dealt with in Jesus Christ. You know that old behavior that always shows itself and everyone around you is like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, old Eric. You see, when you enter into Jesus, that old behavior is put away. It's buried. Buried means to be put out of sight. It is no longer visible. And so this is actually good news, even though it doesn't feel like good news. We share in his death, and we share in his sufferings, we share in his burial. It's actually wonderful news, even though at first glance it doesn't seem like it. So what have we gotten ourselves into? When you step into Jesus Christ, it all sounds good. It's like, oh, eternal life with the Father. Oh, how wonderful. What are we stepping into? We're stepping into a suffering Savior. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Excuse me? I just stepped into a lamb? And where, where are you headed, lamb? To the slaughter. What? You see, this is what Paul actually talks about in Romans 8, too. We are as lambs unto slaughter. What? Hey, I didn't sign up for this. Are you sure you didn't sign up for this? 
You see, you want the resurrection, but the resurrection always follows the death. You see, when you enter into Christ, he walks you through everything that is requisite to truly bring you to life. And this is part of it. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. The strange three-day journey. There's something about three days in Scripture. When all seems backwards, dark, and lost. So three days in Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, seems to hearken back to this idea of, God, did you forget us? Hey, hey God, uh, I have some serious needs here right now. Uh, and it seems like you've gone silent. All goes dark. So this is one of those things in each of our lives that we have to know how to grapple with. Now, when I teach at Ellerslie, I, I stick a pedestal over here and I stick a pedestal over here. And on this one, I set an apple. And on this one, I set the Bible. And you are in the middle, faith. Faith has to make a decision of which way it's going to turn. Are you going to turn to what I always call the slick attorney? It's the devil. And he's always hanging out with the apple, and he's like, yeah, see, doesn't this look good? It's the natural realm. It's all the appeal of everything that would draw us away from the truth of God's word. And over here, we have the Bible. God just speaks it. He says it plainly. And oftentimes, he doesn't bark and make a lot of noise and thunder about it. He just says it. And... It's so hard sometimes to just listen to what this book has to say because this side is making so much noise. And yet faith in its most basic, most rudimentary understanding is turning your back on that voice. Deliberately saying, I don't care what you have to say. I believe the word of God. So, and that's what these three days are all about. So let's think about the three days of Jesus. We have a betrayal, false accusation, scourging, crucifixion, Death, burial, stone rolled in front, sealed off, Wunk. silence, silence, silence. Uh, our great Messiah uh, died. Uh, he seemed helpless, like he didn't, wasn't even trying to defend himself. He didn't do anything other than just, just die? Okay, this is what the natural is telling you. You see, if all you have is what's coming from this side of the equation, then you could despair, you could go into great depression, you could weep and moan and groan. However, the key in these three days is to remember what the Word of God says. So let's ask a couple questions. Can God lie? Well, you know, and it's sort of hard to answer that in some bulk way. The Bible says he can't. Isn't that funny to think that God can't do something? Because some people would say, he could do whatever he wants. He can't violate his nature, and he is truth. There is no lie in him. So one of the most basic, most rudimentary elements of your Christian walk is to recognize this. God cannot lie. So can God lie? He can't. Has God promised? It's strange, but God didn't have to give us a promise. He could be a truth-telling God, but he doesn't need to speak to us. However, he's condescended to promise us something. He didn't have to. But the God who cannot lie has also promised. You combine those two things together and boom, you have faith. Something to believe in. A God who is, who is unable to lie has spoken to us. Well, you might as well start listening to it. And that's the key to how faith works. So the word of God on the matter. You know that God actually spoke about these three days? You know that God actually said something about these three days? And what he says matters. And he began to teach them, speaking of Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Listen to this. And after three days, rise again. So what's the word of God on the matter? The Son of Man will suffer. Because what's the enemy saying? Look at your weak Messiah. Look at this guy. You're calling him your champion, your victor, your Messiah. So much for him. Look at him. He's dead. And what is the word of God saying the whole time? He must suffer. He must die. And on the third day, he will rise again. You see, what you're calling silence isn't silence. God is speaking. His word is still valid. Though it was spoken thousands of years ago, do you know that it's still speaking today? So where am I going with this? You might think God is silent. He's anything but. 
He has spoken, and his word is not null and void today. It still means precisely what he intended it to mean. So you know there's another voice on the subject, and many of you are very familiar with this voice. It's a yammering loudmouth. And so the slick attorney over here is always saying something. So what's the word of the devil on these three days? What's he saying? Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, speaking of, they're calling him a deceiver, speaking of Jesus, while he was yet alive, that after three days, he will rise again. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Have you ever seen that happen before? Come on, what an idiot. You see, this side is making a lot of noise. There's a word of the devil on the matter, and there's the word of God. Which one are you listening to? You see, that is everything in your Christian walk. In every situation, there are going to be two voices. One that is denigrating and dismissing the word of God. And another one that is the word of God. God cannot lie, and he has promised. How are you going to handle the three-day test? It's, It's an amazing thing, but you have stepped into Christ. And in so doing, it seems like you've stepped into the three-day test. It's like, it's just part and parcel of our life. Do we have resurrection life? We do. But we also sort of get the death burial that goes before it. You see, we get life in such a way where the obvious evidence of God on the throne, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, isn't just there for the senses to pick up. We have to believe. We must believe that what God said is true. You see, we're sort of in a three-day test right now. Jesus Christ is victorious, but he's not here. We can't put our fingers in his, in his wounds. We can't talk with him and say, so you're coming again? It's his word that we trust. He's spoken it, and he cannot lie. Yes, I'm coming again. And yes, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. You see, we must trust something. We are in a season of silence. I'm not saying God isn't speaking. I'm not saying that. I'm saying compared to the degree that we would want him to speak, I mean, come on, God, if you really are God, boom, out of the heavens, I am God. And then all of us could just believe. It's so much easier. Instead, we have something that was revealed, something that was promised, and then God seems to lie down. He says, oh, I said it. I said it. Oh, God, uh, is it still true, though? Because there's a lot of noise coming from over here. If God has said it, it's true. And so as you walk through those dark seasons, as as all seems to go backwards and upside down, God hasn't changed. I know it seems weird that God would lie in a tomb. What is he doing? However, he's in perfect control. And it's part of what is testing and proving us and making us ready to truly appreciate the resurrection. So the three days of Christ were long ago foretold. It's an amazing thought. So I'm going to go through each one of these individually. The three-day are-you-willing test. The three-day will-you-buckle test. The three-day bitter waters test. The three-days are-you-ready-to-try-the-impossible test. The three-day but-I-can't-go-another-step test. The three-day if-I-perish-I-perish test. The three-day in-the-belly-of-the-earth test. So let's go through each one of them. I'll go through these quick, don't worry. The three-day are-you-willing test. So let's go back to the book of Genesis. Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Oh, a test. We don't really prefer tests. Oh, God. And, of course, this is, just happens to be a three-day test. Did you know that? And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, now, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Could you imagine what these three days feel like? God has given a promise to Abraham that of his seed, Isaac, he will make his generations. He will call forth his seed. It will be in that that the promise will be revealed. God has made a promise to Abraham about this very son, and yet he's asking him to lay him down. Can God lie? And has God promised? You know what it says in the New Testament? That Abraham believed that God could raise up Isaac from the dead. He knew it. He knew God had promised, even though the test that he was walking through, I can't even imagine as a father to go through this. I mean, it is so inconceivable what Abraham had to be facing in this situation. 
And yet one foot in front of the other, he kept going. And I don't know what it would be like to bind your son and put him on an altar and raise a knife above it. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, men, stay here with the donkey. And the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Wow. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together, then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for I know, now know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh, the I am provides. You see, what is three days proven? Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was dark. Yes, it was excruciating. But Abraham had faith the entire journey through it. We will return to you. Because God is a God of resurrection life. And so Abraham had to face these three days with the knowledge that God will resurrect. Even though up to this point in all of history, I don't know that there had ever been a recorded resurrection from the dead. Isn't that an amazing thought? This is a man of faith. And guess what? Was his faith misplaced? Do you know how much noise must have been coming from this side of the ledger? Was his faith misplaced? Can God lie? And has God promised? He will prove faithful. And did he? Of course he did. He always does. So there's a gospel question that comes to us all these thousands of years later. And that is, in these three days, are we willing to give up that which is most precious to us to follow Jesus Christ? You see, there are impediments in our soul. And God wants to put his finger on each of these things. And the three days that lead to our resurrection life, to the understanding of truly walking in triumph and victory, are we willing to allow him to touch the Isaacs in us and say, will you go on this three-day journey and bind that and lay it on the altar for me? Oh, God. You see, these three days are a challenge, yes, but what follows them? What follows them is resurrection. The three-day will-you-buckle test. It's amazing, but all throughout the Bible, we have three-day tests. And they're tests, and they all have to do with darkness and difficulty. But God has the famous Passover day, when the death angel passes over Egypt. And all those that put the blood, the blood of the lamb on the, the doorpost, guess what? They were spared. And Pharaoh says, get out! And so now we have the beginnings of the Exodus. And they journey three days. And where do they come to in three days but to the edge of the Red Sea? You know what? Talk about a test. You know what's happening? They're backed up to a Red Sea. There's mountains on both sides. And now Pharaoh has decided he doesn't really want to lose his servants after all. And so he comes in all his military pomp and circumstance to regain his slaves. So they're surrounded on all sides. So how are you doing right now if you're stuck in that situation? Well, Flavius Josephus, and by the way, for the students, uh, Philip's going to go through a message called Provision for the Impossible, which will detail this in, I mean, in amazing detail. But this is just one little quote from Flavius Josephus and how he describes what is taking place. Now, when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them, and by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place, for the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots and 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices in the sea. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. Could you imagine this entire nation 
that has been supernaturally delivered by God. Supernaturally. How could anyone else explain it? How did they even get to that place? It's by God. He's the one that even brought them there. And yet, he didn't give them weapons? That wasn't a very wise thought, God. I mean, you should have considered these things in your plan. However, is God cut off guard? You see, the question is, when you find yourself seemingly defenseless and weaponless, and yet all the powers of earth and hell coming against you, and you're surrounded by difficulty, it's an impossible situation. Should you despair? What's the enemy saying from this quarter? What's he saying from over here? You're a dead man. Despair. Give way to panic. Start screaming. But what does the word of God say? I've delivered you out of Egypt in order that I might bring you into the land of promise. Doesn't seem to be anything in there about dying at the Red Sea. You see, God has promised, and he cannot lie. He has delivered them, and he will continue the work that he has begun. He will not fail them now. You see, they had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. What's this side saying? Just give yourself up. Maybe Pharaoh will be generous and nice to you and allow you to come back without too much of a penalty. So they laid the blame on Moses. What do we do? What do we oftentimes do when things are looking bleak? We blame God. We blame God. It's like, look what you brought me into. God is delivering you right now. You see, you're forsaking him, not him forsaking you. Don't listen to this voice. Listen to the word of God. And forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet. They were throwing stones at Moses while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God. He said, and the reason I read this quote, first of all, in the the biblical text, which is the accurate text, the inspired one, and so I'm not trying to say Flavius Josephus is inspired. However, for this very quote, I think it's worth it. Listen to this. This is what Moses says back to a despairing people. It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. It's no better than madness to turn and listen to this voice, to heed this voice in the midst of the three days. Did not Jesus say that after three days he would rise again? Do not despair when he's lying in a grave silence. Didn't he speak to you? Didn't his word communicate a very specific message to you? Do not despair now. It is no better than madness to do it. So the gospel question, can God fail you? You know that it is impossible for God to fail you. He cannot do it. He is simply unable to fail. He can only be faithful. That is who he is. Is it not true that he is faithful to his word and that it is impossible for him to lie? Is there ever a time when it is reasonable to despair? Ever. Can you name one time in all history when the saints of God should give way to despair, which means to give up faith? Never a time. Because the one that we put our faith in is, in fact, faithful. The three-day bitter waters test. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. So now they've crossed the Red Sea, of course, after God delivers them. You know, every time, I don't know if you've noticed, there's going to be a pattern in all these three days that they come to the end of themselves. They come to almost a point of despair, of total darkness, and then God comes through. So, and so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. You notice that there's all these provings that are taking place, these trials. It's a test. And he said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, if you will listen to the word of God and do that which it says, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. This is where Jehovah Rapha, the name, comes through. Jehovah Jireh is revealed in Abraham's story. Jehovah Rapha is revealed in this story. If 
You believe the word, you will recognize that I am the healer. I am the resurrection and the life. Taking a tree and sticking it in the bitter waters. Does that, does that sound like something in the New Testament? A tree. A tree in the bitter waters and what happens? It turns sweet. The gospel question, will he not turn this bitterness into sweetness? You see, in every bitter situation that you have, every situation where there's a tumult of soul, do you not realize that there is a tree that he has supplied? He even promises, he says, come to this tree and allow it to be applied to your bitter situation and you will find that the waters will be turned sweet. This is the gospel. It's a promise. It's in his word. Make sure you turn in this direction instead of towards the enemy. The three-day are you ready to try the impossible test? Pass through the host. So this is after Moses' 40 years. Moses is now passed on, and now Joshua is in charge of the ranks. And so, pass through the host and command the people, saying, prepare you victuals, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess it. So this is, again, Joshua in the Old Testament is the same name as Jesus. He has taken the inheritance from Moses and now he's taken the lead to actually fulfill the promise that God said, I've brought you out of Egypt in order that I might bring you into the land of promise. God has spoken and he cannot lie. When God speaks, he will always fulfill it. And now we have another three-day test. And guess what's standing in front? We have walled cities that reach up to the heavens. We have giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. What are you looking at? Is the natural realm boasting? Oh, yes, it is. However, what has God spoken? Go, march forward. I will deliver them into your hands. You see, God has spoken. I know it looks bleak. I know it looks dangerous. I know it looks bad. But you allow Joshua to lead you in, and you will find that victory soon will follow. The gospel question, is he not greater than the boastings of this natural realm? You see, this is the proving of each of our souls. Each of these questions is the gospel question to us. Old Testament three-day tests, and they're New Testament tests for us. You see, these are the proving grounds of how we recognize the beauty and the triumph of the cross and its subsequent resurrection. The three-day, but I can't go another step test. Now, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David's camp is in Ziklag. Guess who shows up? The Amalekites. Now, any of you that have been studying with us here at Ellerslie know they're the descendants of Esau, the firstborn. So this is like a symbol of the flesh. The flesh seems to have the upper hand. This is a test. David is exhausted. His men are exhausted, and yet everything they know and love has been taken. Their families, their wives, their children. It's all been taken. What are you going to do in a situation like this? Talk about bitterness. Talk about difficulty. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. And David pursued he and 400 men for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. So many of them could not even go on because they were so tired. These three days had drained them of all strength. And yet who kept going? David. And who did he go out against? The Amalekites. And what did he do? He completely destroyed them. And he got back the entire treasure. He was the redeemer of that which was taken. You see, we have the final piece. Oh, you've never seen such exhaustion. The test is too great. I can't keep going. And what does David say? I'm going. I'm moving forward. Our God has promised. He will not forsake his women and children. He will not forsake his possession. He will progress and he will gain full access to them. This is the proving. Do you know that our David lives? Do you know that he has not forsaken you? He's not going to forget you in the hands of the Amalekites. He will go and gain his possession. The gospel question, will he not cause you to rise up with wings as eagles and to run and not grow weary? 
When you get to that point when you are so tired and so exhausted and the pull is like a, a vacuum pull upon your soul to just turn in despair and to listen to the devil and say, yeah, maybe you're right, devil. Maybe God has forgotten me. To literally turn and to believe and to say, even though I'm weak, he has given me a promise and that is that I will in my weakness find a greater measure of strength than I've ever found before. His grace is made perfect, in fact, in this weakness and I will rise up on wings like eagles. I will run and not grow weary and walk and not faint, for I serve the living God, the God of resurrection life. The three-day, if I perish, I perish test. One of my favorite three-day periods in the Bible is in the book of Esther. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go and unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Talk about a test. You know what three days these were? The exact same three days of Nisan 14 unto the resurrection morning. Exact same three days in Hebrew history. Isn't that amazing? These are the same three days. And so what we have is a test. Does it look bleak? Oh, yeah. Because it's illegal for Esther to step before King Artis Xerxes unbidden. And yet she is willing to do it. She is willing to stand as an intercessor. And if you've read the story, you know that it doesn't turn out bad. You see, it's amazing, but this is the test. All of Israel is hanging in the balance. They're literally, the Jews are going to be wiped out by Haman's you know, conniving and the decree that he had Artis Xerxes sign. I mean, this is bad. This is about as ugly as it could ever look. All the Jews will be obliterated off planet Earth. Unless. Well, yeah, but what's that unless? Unless God is faithful? Hey, I'm going to stick all my confidence on that. Wasn't Esther appointed for such a time as this? And if Esther forsook God, did you know that God would raise up another deliverer? God will prove faithful no matter what man does. God is on the throne. Our confidence isn't in Esther. It's in him. However, he will use an Esther. He will use us. He will use us in that three-day test. In the midst of it, we, what do we declare? If I perish, I perish. But my God's purposes will be revealed in this generation. The gospel question for us, is he not worthy of our entire lives? And even if we die, is his cause not deserving our body and blood? You see, this is how you appropriate the power of the resurrection life. You walk through these three-day tests. You see, when you enter into Christ, you enter into his death. The death to the old man, the death to the Amalekites, the death to the old way of thinking and living, and that you bury it. It's no longer what's holding you back. You begin to think a new way of thinking, that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, that you belong to him. And so you consecrate everything. You become a living sacrifice and lay yourself before him. In a sense, you say, bind me and lay me on the altar, God. In other words, I belong to you, and yet he has provided a ram. Jesus Christ, it's not for you to be slain. He took that blow. And yet, you live a life of death. You live a life of constant sacrifice. You live a life of giving. You are not the sacrifice for the sins of the world, and yet you are offered as a sacrifice. You are given up for his glory as a sweet-smelling offering before his throne. The three-day in-the-belly-of-the-earth test. And Jesus himself even refers to this. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Yeah, that's pretty dark. Uh, Things have gone pretty bad here. It's not just a bad, dark situation, but it stinks too, I have a hunch. In other words, we're in a bad state of affairs. Where do you stand? Do you recognize, you know that... uh, I mean, even the time period for this, that we have Jonah showing up at Nineveh, who they, they, they serve the goddess Ishtar, which is where Easter even comes from. What day do you think he stepped in and made the declaration that he had been spat out of a whale and God says, repent? What day do you think it is? Just hazard a guess. He's literally standing against the goddess Ishtar. When do you think he would do it? Just use your imagination. We have ourselves a declaration of something in the Old Testament unto the Gentiles. It's amazing. The gospel question, is he not the resurrection and the life? 
When things go dark, Jesus showed us how to walk it. You know that he walked through the, are you willing, will you buckle, bitter waters, are you ready to try the impossible, but I can't go another step. If I perish, I perish in the belly of the earth test. He did. He walked through this. Most of us are like, I can't handle this, Jesus. Well, then get inside of Jesus because he can walk through it. You see, he's already endured this, and he's the one that will carry you through it. It's the word of God himself that will carry you through this test. I mean, think about this list. Are you willing? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Are you willing, Jesus? Not my will, but thine. Will you buckle? Well, if there was ever a situation to buckle, it was this one. Who's Jesus of Nazareth? Is I am he. You see, he's literally turning himself over, handing himself over into the hands of sinners, willfully doing it. Bitter waters? Uh-huh, that was bitter. Are you ready to try the impossible? Yeah, you're ready to carry the weight of the sin of the world upon your shoulders. But I can't go another step. I mean, even that matches. And he collapses under the weight of this cross. It's an amazing thought to think of God coming and bearing this burden and walking through these same tests. If I perish, I perish in the belly of the earth three days, three nights. The three days are begging an answer. You see, these three days in our life are asking us questions. And they're basically saying, are you going to turn this way? Are you going to turn this way? Are you going to listen to the enemy or are you going to listen to the word of God? For each of us, let's, let's answer that question. Because this, this voice over here, this slick attorney, is making a lot of noise. But though heeding your God will cost you everything, though it would appear that the enemy forces outnumber you and you are pinned up against the Red Sea, though the waters are currently tasting rather bitter, though the enemy has walled cities that reach up to the heavens, there are giants in the land and you appear as grasshoppers in their sight, though your fuel tank has run low, your spiritual mustard has lost its zest, Though death is imminent and to keep standing strong seems futile and ridiculous, though the circumstances are wholly impossible, where do you stand? I don't care what the natural realm states. I say, what does God's word state? That's all that matters. You see, your Messiah is lying dead, wrapped rather thick in grave cloths. He's dead. For all practical purposes, this guy is just a goner. And yet, he promised. Where do you turn? My God has promised. I know it looks bad. I I recognize it's been one day. I I recognize it's been two days. But he said he will rise again on the third day. Can your God lie? It's impossible for God to lie. Has your God promised He sure has. The three days always end with triumph. It's one of the things you're going to see in the Old Testament. I recognize these three days are not comfortable. However, the thing I want us to make sure we don't forget is that always they end in triumph. Always the three days end in triumph. The provision of a lamb, when did it happen? At the end of the third day. I mean, right at the pinnacle point of obedience and testing, are you willing to walk with God all the way through to the end? Have you ever noticed that God loves 11.59 and 59 seconds? Like, God, I prefer like 9 p.m. at least. I mean, this whole going to 11.59 and 59 seconds, raising the knife, and then Abraham. It's like, God, did you have to do that to me? There's something being done in these three days that we must say yes to, and we must allow God to thoroughly work the work of these three days in us. Because God could have just died, been laid down on the ground next to the cross, and then popped back to life. You know, it sounds a lot easier to all of us, too. We don't need this three-day interim. We don't need this test. We don't need to be one of the disciples going, what did, what, what is this? I followed him. I mean, could you imagine how confusing that would be? And all of us are looking, we're saying, hey, the word of God says. And yet how many of us in this room, even when we're facing the same type of tests in our life, are despairing? You see, he has spoken to us. Parting of a Red Sea and swallowing up of a dastardly enemy. Yeah, that's how the uh, three-day test to the Red Sea turns out. Bitter waters turn into sweet waters. The conquering of Canaan, yes, I realize that they have walled cities and they have giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. However, Joshua conquers Canaan. 
the destruction of the Amalekites. I realize David's tired. His men are exhausted. However, what happens? The Amalekites are conquered. Uh, Oh, I know Haman has it in for the Jews, and oh, it looks really dark and miserable right now, but guess what happens in the end? Haman gets hung. Oh, no, Jonah's in the belly of a whale. Oh, woe is us. What's going to happen next? Hey, hey, no, never fear. The spitting back out of Jonah. The stone rolls away. The mighty prophet of old that has come to bring the message of repentance unto the Gentiles steps out of the empty grave. Listen to this scripture. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. There's something about making it through day one and day two that is really challenging. Where do you look? To what the enemy has to say or to what God has promised? I will rise again on the third day. I will defeat the Amalekites. I will provide a ram for you. Your provision is there. It is already provided. Can't you just see that ram? He's wandering through and God's like, over here, little ram. Over here. And the ram is right at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, stuck. You see, God knows what you need. He knows what you're missing. He knows what you're short of right now. He knows the agony that you're walking through. And I know he appears silent. God, do you hear me? Because if you heard me, you'd supply. He hears you. But there's something about this apparent silence that is important to work in your soul, because he's saying, I am still speaking. My word is a living word, and it is valuable to you right now, and I'm telling you, I've heard you. I will supply for you. I am Jehovah Jireh, which doesn't mean he did provide, but it means he does provide. He is. It means he was, he is, and he is to come. So just as he provided for Abraham back then, he provides for us today, and he will always do it. This is how God reveals himself in and through three days. The question is, are we willing to heed our God? Are we willing to trust him? I recognize that he appears silent, but he's speaking. He's saying, do you trust me? This voice is very loud. The enemy is noisome. He is miserable. And yet God has a calm, steady voice. And he says, on the third day, I will raise you up. On the third day, I will raise you up. On the third day, I will raise you up. On the third day, I will raise you up. Don't panic. I recognize the first and the second day and all throughout that night. You're, it's looking dark. It's looking bad. But just know I am the one that is the resurrection and the life. This story will not end in disaster. Your story will not end in disaster. You know what the enemy is always doing? It's called foreboding. He's always saying, oh, if this goes like this, then this would happen. Oh, no. Foreboding is fortune-telling. It is not the way God works. God has already stated what will happen, and it's not what the enemy's saying. The enemy will always tell you about disaster. Your future holds misery. Yeah, you'll die, you know, in some miserable way. Oh, yes, and then you'll lose all your money, and the government will overtake you, all these things. Do you know what God's word says? The exact opposite. I'm in control. Fear not. The rest of the heathen seek after this. I'm telling you, seek my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things are going to be taken care of. You make me your focus. I will take care of you. I recognize that you're going through a dark trial. But that dark trial ends with a stone that rolls away. When you begin to recognize the signal of the resurrection life, it is a statement that God is in fact God. That was, in fact, God. That work on that cross was, in fact, God's work for you. It is the final exclamation point of the entire work of the cross. He's telling the truth. He has spoken aforetime that when it comes to pass, you would believe that he is. Entering the triumphant Christ. Remember in the beginning we said the suffering Christ? You step into, oh, the, the betrayal, the false accusation, the, the, the scourging, the suffering, the dying, the burial. Well, yeah, yeah. But you're also stepping into the triumph. I am in Christ. I'm in Christ. Therefore, his sufferings are my sufferings. His affliction, my affliction. His death, my death. His burial, my burial. But just think, 
His resurrection is my resurrection. His ascension, my ascension. His seat, my seat. Where is he seated? The right hand of the Father. All things beneath his feet, and I am in him. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's apparent silence. Is he really silent? Well, you could answer that. We have the word of God. Is he silent? No, he's still speaking. So don't blame God for being silent. He's spoken. Jesus, I know, didn't, wasn't saying a lot when he was in that grave. However, he was still speaking. On the third day, I will rise again. On the third day, I will rise again. Do you hear his voice? As you're going through your dark stretch, do you hear his voice? On the third day, I will raise you up. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. You see, he's telling you right now, before he makes the provision in the obvious sense, before you recognize that ram caught in the thicket, before you see the waters part and you walk across on dry land, before that bitter water turns into sweet water, before you see the 31 hostile empires in the land of Canaan collapse into dust, before Jonah is spat back out, before Artaxerxes turns against Haman and hangs him, before David pursues the Amalekites and destroys them, before you see the final, do you realize that God is speaking and he's saying, it's in my hand. I hold these things. You trust me. You must believe. For he's telling us before it happens that when it happens, we would say, he truly is God. He truly is who he says he is. So, he's telling us beforehand. Before the three days even come, he says, there's going to be three days. But on the third day, I will rise again. Now I tell you, this is my massively expanded version, by the way. Now I tell you before it come to pass that when we enter the three days of silence and darkness, you may remember and stand firm on the fact that I have already spoken and I'm not going to change my mind on the matter now. There's no reason to despair. It's not like God changed his mind and said, oh, you know, I, I don't think it'll be the third day anymore that I rise. I think I'll change that. He will rise, just as he said. He's promised, and he cannot lie. That is the cornerstone, the bedrock of your faith. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is a confidence that God has spoken, and he tells the truth. And so as a result, you bank on that fact. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.